Hello, everyone. I am Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm your host of Leading with Empathy and Allyship. Welcome. Allyship is about learning, showing empathy, and taking action. That process often includes learning, unlearning, and relearning, then building empathy for people with different experiences, and above all, taking consistent action. So each week, we'll learn from somebody new. Please be open to new ways of thinking and understanding. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And bear with me today a bit. I'm recovering from COVID today, so you may notice my voice change or other symptoms come up. I have asthma and some other immune system issues, so it's definitely impacted me more than it does for many other people. Our guest today is Rahime Ramazani, DEI practitioner and founder of Rahime Ramazani Consulting. We'll be discussing religious inclusion today, especially focusing on how to be an ally for your Muslim colleagues and why intersectionality is essential when working on Muslim inclusion. So welcome, Rahime. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. It is a pleasure to be here. Awesome. All right. So Rahime, would you start by sharing your own story, where you grew up, how you ended up here doing the work that you do now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So. I am American, born and raised in the United States. That's something that I have a little bit of tension, not in this conversation, but in general, because Muslims in the United States and in the West in general are kind of perceived automatically as not as being foreigners. So it's something that I've learned as a part of my work that I have to clarify because folks, a lot of times if I critique... (laughs) government systems that I see as my government, so I can critique my own government. Folks are get very defensive of like, oh, this foreigner is critiquing our our country. I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm, uh, this is my country too. So anyway, I'm American. I am born and raised specifically in California, uh, which you might be able to tell from my California Western West Coast accent. I am currently in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Bay Area absolutely has my heart. And I was born into a Muslim family. I am multi-ethic, as I mentioned before. I have a white mixed European descent parent, and then I have an Iranian immigrant parent. So I'm still in search for the right word for someone who has one immigrant parent and one non-immigrant parent, you know, folks who have like second generation. The thought is that they have two immigrant parents. I've heard of half generation, which is they themselves came to the new country that they're in at like seven, 10 years old. So they kind of have like this mixed identity, but I've never heard. So anyone, anyone listening to this, if you know of a term, you reach out to me on one of my socials or my email or something like, you let me know like, hey, I listened to this podcast. This is the term you're looking for, please. I would be so grateful. So growing up, there wasn't any like awareness of like the cultural differences between my parents and how they raised us. I was primarily raised by my like, again, white mixed European ancestry parent. So I don't speak Farsi. I only got to know like Persian culture as an adult. And I wasn't raised in a practicing Muslim family. So I wasn't a practicing Muslim, though ironically, I wore hijab or the head covering since I was 11. So it's like a very mixed up weird... Yeah, it's a weird story. That's a story for another time. I'm happy to tell it. Uh, but just for the purposes of like kind of being removed from Middle Easterners away from Persian folks away from other Muslims, all of these things. And when I got into college, I 
got my major in my bachelor's was communication studies. And I took my first intercultural communications course. And my mind was just blown because I heard about these cultural dimensions, especially around direct versus indirect communication. So if anyone has spent any time around both direct and indirect communicators, their ways of speaking, showing respect, showing that they're angry and like conflict management is just completely different. And at the time when I was in college, I was living only like my dad and I were living together just the two of us. And that was the first time I'd ever spent like so much concentrated time with my dad because he was working from home. And we would have constant fights, which ultimately came down to the same thing was him being upset with me and me telling him like, well, if you were upset, why didn't you just tell me? Right. And then I could have done something about it. And him telling me, no, you should have just known back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So when I took this intercultural communications course, it explained the differences between direct and indirect communication. It unlocked so many answers about like my parents' relationship, my relationship to like Middle Easterners, to Persians. By that time, I had chosen to become a practicing Muslim. So I was around a lot more Middle Easterners and South Asians and Southeast Asians, which are also indirect communicators. So it just answers so much of what was going on in my life. And so I went into a master's degree in intercultural communication from there. And in my master's degree program, I learned about the existence of diversity, equity, and inclusion as a field. Most little children growing up, when you ask them, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're, you know, there's the same sort of kind of um, careers. But in DEI, obviously, was not one that I even knew existed. <laughs> so I right. love the intersection of DEI and intercultural communication. Awesome. When it comes to religious inclusion, um, it's often left out of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Could you start by just sharing some of the experiences that Muslim people have that are important to address when it comes to inclusion and belonging in the workplace? Yeah, I would say that, yeah, absolutely, that religion, religious identity, religious diversity is one of the least discussed, even mentioned in passing, right? Never centered, got no, never, <laughs> but not even mentioned in passing as a thing within diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's really important to me to be very clear that my work in trying to incorporate religious diversity and inclusion into DEI work and taking a turn in being centered is never to be in competition with other identity groups and them having attention and inclusion work and belonging work directed towards their unique needs and situations, right? Part of white supremacy culture and norms is for all of us, no matter what our identities, privileged or marginalized, to feel like we are in constant competition with each other. And so my intention in trying to deconstruct those norms is to be very intentional about I am not in competition with other groups. We are all collectively human and we all need to feel a sense of belonging and inclusion and equitable access to opportunities and good treatment and all of that. And this is one part of uh, many people's identities, many people around the world, most people around the world identify with some sort of religious faith-based identity. You know, if you focus on ethnicity, there's very much an intersection and overlap between religious and 
ethnic slash racial identity. So it's very important to me to be very clear about that, that my intention is never to be in competition with other groups. I'm not taking away from them. They are not taking away from me. Okay. So just setting that framing very clearly. The idea with religious inclusion, especially what I see in the workplace is that there is such a strong sense of like, it is unprofessional. It is taboo. It is just completely not appropriate to mention religion in the workplace that anyone like me who visibly is very clearly a member of especially a marginalized religious identity. Muslim women who wear a hijab are a part of that, but there are Sikhs who wear a turban. There are many other people who would be visibly identifiable as a part of a certain religion. Many people's names are associated with a religious group. So if you wanted to hide your religious identity based off of your name, changing your name, which as we know, names are the most beautiful word to all of us individually is the the sound of our own name. It's obviously very attached to our heritage and our family. And usually our, our parents or family members have spent you know, a lot of time and energy and care picking out our names when we were born. All of these things are having to be hidden in order to just, again, be appropriate, be considered professional in the workspace. Even if you don't visibly, like, aren't visibly identifiable as being a part of a religion, there are many folks who their faith is so important to who they are. And just like we would ask someone of a racialized identity, of a gendered identity, of disability identity, of a neurodiversity, on and on, like all of the different factors of identity that DEI does such a good job and is working very hard to incorporate in a reasonable accommodation sort of manner to tell them, we would never tell them to just like check your identities at the door because you're bothering people because your existence, literally your existence just is unprofessional, is not appropriate for our space. We would not tell someone or we are telling people from a religious background that your identity, even if there and there is a way to do it constructively, right? Like, and we can get into that later, but just your existence as a religious person even if you're not trying to convert me, even if you're not bringing like literature, even if you're not taking up any space that like imposes on other people whatsoever, just your existence is too bothersome. And we just rather you just not. Yeah. Uh, Obviously that is not belonging (laughs) and that is where we want to go. So I think we'll, we'll get to some, some solutions in a moment, but I also want to address intersectionality. You talked about being multi-ethnic and I think it's important to, um, you know, people often see Muslim as one way of looking and being. Can you talk a little bit about intersectionality? Yeah, absolutely. And this is really important, again, on in all identities. So anything that you've learned in DEI trainings or DEI like courses that you may have taken that have to do with intersectionality, that have to do with psychological safety, that have to do with feedback and just all of these things, a lot of these same principles apply to religious identity. It really isn't that foreign of a concept. If you sit with the discomfort and push past that discomfort of like, oh, I've never been able to talk about this without people like blowing up or trying to like tell each other that you're going to hell or whatever. (laughs) 
right? If we can push past that discomfort, there is so much in common with other identity work that is being done. So having said that, with the idea of intersectionality and the diversity of Muslims specifically, there is an estimated 1.8 billion Muslims around the world. I believe it is estimated by Pew Research that that's going to go up to 3 billion by 2060. So about 25%, a full quarter of the world is Muslim. Like that's a huge percentage. It is the largest or the second largest religious group after Christianity. And so the idea being that any group where you can find people from this religious group all over the world in all countries, from all genders, speaking any language from any and all ethnicity and race and socioeconomic status and educational status and on and on and on, all of these different things that just like non-Muslims, like think of yourself, if you, you are listening to this, that you have one, pick any part of your identity and that part of your identity is so important and a core part of who you are, but it is a part of who you are. You are not going to be making decisions, whether like gut decisions that you just react or things that you are thinking and considering and then making the decision based off of one of your identities. You are a collection of identities that can't be just pieced apart. We are not, you know, the sum of all of our identities. We are this mismatch of all of these things all at the same time. And Muslims are no different. We are human beings just like you. And Muslims will make decisions based off of many different factors, not just our religion. And religion, yes, is part of that. Sometimes there's also a difference of ascribing to the religion and like how practicing you are. There are different sects of the religion. It's funny, sometimes I talk to non-Muslims who really have just no idea about anything about Muslims. And it doesn't even occur to them that there are different sects of the religion, which of course there are, there are many. And even myself as a Muslim, I don't even know all of the sects within Islam, right? Which is another reason why it's so important to get to know many different people from any identity group. And you're not just like, oh, I know one Black person. I know one Muslim person. I know one Latina person. I know one, one of any one group. And that's like my sole source of information about this giant group of people. So the idea being is that you have to keep that in mind that Muslims do things for different reasons. If also keep like bringing it into the workplace, there are going to be Muslims who ask for different accommodations or one might ask for accommodation and another one doesn't care about that accommodation, right? For instance, Muslims, if you are a practicing Muslim, you pray five times a day, once at dawn, two times in like the in the afternoon time, most of the time they will split them up like noon and afternoon, and then one at uh, sunset and then one at night. Muslims pray those five times a day if they are practicing Muslim. So if you have someone in your workplace who is doing this and they ask for a prayer space or if they can take some time out of their lunch, right, like within their lunch hour to do this, it's not like they're asking for extra time that other people don't have. They're slotting that into their lunch hour. Maybe they use it their 15 minute break at some point to do that as well. But you might have another Muslim on your team who does not do that, right? And it's not going to be appropriate in any way for management or leadership or anyone in that organization to question the two Muslims and be like, well, you guys do things differently. What's that about? Right? Because then I mean, unfortunately, that's that's really problematic because you're putting these two Muslims 
where they have to like either tear each other down to like defend themselves instead of like throwing one of the other ones under the bus. Right. Which is really like not is not cool move. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about how we can be more supportive of Muslim colleagues and also maybe how managers can be supportive of their direct reports as well. What are some things for folks to think about? Yeah, no, absolutely. So something that is really kind of the foundation that it's not like a, here's five tips on how to, you know, be inclusive of Muslims. Like we can, we will get to that. We'll get to that in a second. But the idea is that a lot of Muslims are from ethnic cultures that indirect communication, as I mentioned at the beginning, is kind of like the norm. And also many Muslims in the West, not all of them are immigrants, but many of them are. So just let's please do hold this at the same time. Like don't assume that all Muslims are immigrants or children of immigrants. But however, if they are, you can like hold space for that as well, right? Like we can balance those two things. So if you are engaging with a Muslim who also has an immigrant background within like one or two generations, they also are going to have an immigrant likely they will have an immigrant mentality where in order to survive in this new country where they are already so highly discriminated against as an immigrant that to survive you must put your head down don't create waves don't ask for anything outside of the norm be very accommodating just be grateful that you're here and this sort of kind of like mentality so in many ways again tying this immigrant sense of thinking and in being an indirect communicator, if that might exist separately, one or the other, and sometimes like both very much at the same time, that means that your direct reports and your staff might not express to you what it is that, that their actual needs are. Right. Mm -hmm. So psychological safety. And again, this is something that's going to apply to literally everyone in your or yes, everyone. I don't use that word very often, but everyone in your organization is going to benefit from there being a genuine strong sense of psychological safety. So, but specifically around Muslims is that if they have any sense that their livelihood and especially in, you know, today's age with the economy and natural disasters cropping up all the time and inflation and just all of this instability if you're in the United States your healthcare is tied to this like all your family's healthcare like just so much is on the line for them to stick their neck out to give you this feedback for something where they're like oh I'm so used to just compromising on my values. I'm so used to just not feeling a sense of belonging. I'm used to not being included. So I'm going to preserve my like basic necessities of life. Again, like my income to feed my family and myself and pay my rent and my mortgage and all of those things. If you want to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, you have to have this sense of psychological safety genuinely, right? Like they're going to test you and see if this is legit because a lot of the times, unfortunately, especially in the last number of years, a lot of organizations have learned the lingo on how to pretend to, you know, be DEI friendly. And, you know, we really want you to give us your feedback. And then they finally do. And then they, you know, are demoted or, you know, fired in the long term or they're not given projects or whatever, whatever. Right. So they're going to see if you really mean it and you have to really mean it. So having said that, for your Muslim employees, what's going to be really amazing is if you can 
be accommodating if they do do their daily prayers that there is ideally a prayer space if you don't feel that it, you can slash it's appropriate to call it a prayer space you can use meditation or mindfulness room i've been in a couple of airports that have done this i've been in a couple of office buildings that have done this it's not super common but just having a small quiet clean room that any person in your staff can access, right? Because of course, Muslims are not the only ones who do prayers throughout the day. And again, like if you do make it a mindfulness room, it could be literally just, you know, someone goes, takes their phone, has like meditation app or like a free YouTube video for meditation, goes meditate for, you know, does a mindfulness exercise for 10 minutes and then goes back to work. So it really could be anyone and everyone will benefit from this space, but your Muslim employees will see that you have gone out of your way to make space inclusively and given them their needs without them having to ask. That is going to be so huge. Before you go on, uh, just I think that is really important to call out that it's you creating that space, whether or not you know somebody has is Muslim on your team, whether or not you know somebody prays five times, you know, five times a day and needs the space, is that that's inclusion is creating that space so that people don't have to advocate for themselves so yeah. that they can just be in an inclusive environment. And I'll just share a quick example. I several years ago I worked with a Muslim colleague and there wasn't a space. There was no space. I also worked with a a nursing mom too. There was no space yeah. for her either to pump, and so yeah. she was pumping in the broom closet. And oh my um, god, the broom uh, closet! My Muslim colleague just didn't pray at work. Just decided not to pray at work, and then made up for it in yeah. his prayers afterwards. Right, and that's both of those situations are not going to create that space so that people can um, yeah. step in for the reasons that you talked about. That and and we talked a little bit about self advocacy with Katerina Rivera and John Marble, when it comes to people with disabilities, the same is true here that often, you know, people don't advocate for themselves. They don't know they can advocate for themselves. They don't know how, or they feel that they're not safe to do so. And, and so you create a space for, you know, you, you, ahead of time to create a space for inclusion. And then also that psychological safety to invite people to advocate for themselves if you miss something. Yeah. Emphasis on the safety aspect of things, right? I just want to like really double down on that is that just like it's important, totally different situation that has nothing to do with religion. It is so important for direct report individual contributors to see that management and leadership take vacation time or take breaks during the day and don't just work, 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 because your staff are going to be seeing, oh, the people in leadership, whatever like level they're at, are telling me that I can take a 15 minute break or a 20 minute break or whatever, whatever. But no one in a position of power is doing that. So that is telling them indirectly that that is not the culture of this organization. And then they're going to be thinking, and I'm saying this like as someone who's worked at an organization like that, right? Where I wanted to take like a break from a very intense like work day, but none of the leadership at my organization at the time would take breaks. And so I felt, and I know that there are many others in the same situation that, oh, in order to be seen as a team player, as someone who, you know, fits in with the culture, as someone who, you know, is going to be 
promoted at some point and it's not going to be like oh well she just doesn't do her work very well or she just doesn't doesn't seem dedicated i don't know what it is she just doesn't seem dedicated all of those things it felt like okay i have to do this as well and it came up in a management meeting later on where they then when i asked like oh i just don't feel like i can take breaks they're like what we've told you you can so explicitly they've told me well yeah but literally no one does so that tells me Mm -hmm. that it's not a thing so in the same way it's important for organizations to put these inclusive practices in place before or not necessarily with direct feedback that this is wanted because there isn't a feeling of safety to be able to ask for that, which again is why I bring up psychological safety so much is that in order to get these accommodations needed, and I love what you're saying, I think you said this was from a conversation around disability, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. like there's so much that I've seen from disability DEI practitioners that talk about like so many people with a disability will not disclose, but then therefore not get the accommodations they really do need to be successful because there is so much fear and rightly so of them losing their jobs or not getting promoted or not getting, you know, raises or any of these things seen like as a lesser employee. And so they're not able to share. Then that means they don't get their accommodations. Just this like, horrible cycle that just continues on forever. So in the same way with religious inclusion, if you're able to create, again, these prayer spaces, again, or if you want to call it meditation, or if you want to call it mindfulness, that's good. I also really recommend for Muslims specifically, though, again, like holidays are a thing in many, if not all religious groups or spiritual groups, Ramadan will be coming up, like, I think like in four months or something. And that does sound like it's, you know, a ways away. However, keeping in mind that if you need to make policies, put policies in place for Muslims to be able to ask for time off for the holiday at the end of Ramadan, which is called Eid al-Fit. And please keep in mind that it's not like a celebration of, yay, it's over, we're free. No, it's like, it's a positive of like, we did it. Congratulations. Like, we're so happy that we, you know, were able to participate in this month of Ramadan and fasting. And then we're very much looking forward to the next year making sure that if that falls into a middle of the week or a, you know, like not a weekend, allowing your staff to be able to take time off. Again, like they will do what they need to do to like ask for it ahead of time. They're not asking for it the last day, keeping in mind that fortunately, unfortunately, like it just is that the Muslim calendar is on a lunar calendar. And so Muslims won't know the start of Ramadan or any given month until the new moon is cited, which unfortunately we won't really know until the day before. Uh, So sometimes, you know, with Muslims asking, for instance, with either fifth off, again, the celebration at the end of Ramadan, they might ask for like, oh, it might be this day or this day, but I don't really know. And if you are able to accommodate like, okay, so we'll just have it that these two days, you don't have any preset meetings. Again, they could potentially, like they could be asking it for these days off, like, you know, four weeks in advance, six weeks in advance or what have you asking for these two days. And then whatever day Ramadan ends up not being, you can like go and do your work that doesn't involve meetings. Right. But if they want to ask for accommodations around Ramadan, if they are fasting, moving their meetings to later in the day or earlier in the day, or if they're not working from home, allowing them to work from home or hybrid, just like having these accommodations ready to go rather than even. Yeah. And not scheduling big, product launches or um, um, (laughs) big 
if um, at all possible or yeah. yeah if at all possible or allowing for like flexibility of transitioning who is on what project not necessarily without like I don't want this to turn into like penalizing Muslims fasting during Ramadan by switching them out off of like really important projects, but having that conversation of what is it that the Muslims on your team actually want and will find meaningful. Absolutely. And then also maybe you could just touch on the winter holidays and, and how people should navigate that as well. Yes. Uh, so right now we are just beginning November so there are a lot of holidays in this winter season from many different religious, spiritual, cultural groups, which is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so essentially the idea of being not assuming that any person, Muslim or otherwise, is celebrating or participating in any given holiday, right? There are many Muslims who do not participate in Christmas for instance. And there is nothing wrong with having, say, a Christmas party. However, especially if alcohol is going to be a big part of that celebration, as many Muslims, especially, you know, practicing Muslims do not consume alcohol. This is not all Muslims. Like, please, please, anything you listen to me or any Muslim say about how to be inclusive and equitable towards Muslims, like, please just know, like, there's always going to be an asterisk of, of like, not all Muslims. Right. But I would just be like parroting back and forth. Most, not all Muslims, not all Muslims, not all Muslims, not all Muslims. There are Muslims who drink. There are Muslims who, you know, go to bars. There are Muslims who do all, any and everything. Like I mentioned earlier on in the conversations, Muslims, just like any group, make decisions and do things with their lives for many different reasons and are also on different spectrums of levels of practicing. There's different laws within sects of Islam about you know, some like, for instance, the sect of Islam that I follow doesn't allow me to eat shellfish. So no lobster, no clams or something like that. But there are other sects of Islam that say that's totally fine. So keeping that in mind, again, so going back to the Christmas parties or any celebrations around the holidays or any celebration whatsoever at all ever, if we're talking about alcohol, uh, keeping in mind that please don't like if you're giving gifts to your staff that you're not giving wine or some other kind of spirits. Um, I know I have seen many Muslims, thankfully I have not had that experience, but I know many Muslims who have had that experience where there were places trying to like give a very kind gift for the holidays to their staff and they give out bottles of wine and the Muslims like, what on earth? How do I react to this? Because they like, they don't want to cause a thing. They don't want to be like seen as ungrateful. They don't want to. Anyway, it, it's very complicated. Like, please just like, please don't do that. <laughs> if Muslims don't want to come and participate in a hall in any particular holiday event, uh, Christmas or otherwise, I just mentioned Christmas specifically because that is like the biggest, most celebrated winter holiday in the United States and I presume in the West as well. Allowing them to opt out without it being like, oh, you're not a team player. Or, oh, you don't want to come and socialize with us. There are a lot of people who don't want to socialize slash want to keep like some healthy bound, what they would see as healthy boundaries between them and their coworkers and their social time. So making space and allowing for that, right? If there are, you know, there's Hanukkah, there's Kwanzaa, there are other holidays that are a really big deal to other religious slash cultural slash spiritual groups, making sure that you are incorporating those religious groups as well. And I always advocate for having like done the research of what is kind of the norm 
in that time and also keeping like a feedback submission form or some sort of kind of open door policy where someone who does want to add another holiday or another stipulation or something has the open door to then add and advocate for that because anything that you research online or you have a speaker myself coming to talk about Muslims, you have a Jewish person coming to talk about Judaism and what Jews want. You have a Buddhist coming in to talk about Buddhism and what Buddhists want in your workplace and how to be inclusive of them. Ultimately, again, those are all going to be generalizations. And I personally believe that generalizations have their place. However, again, always having kind of like that open door Again, whether they're virtually giving you feedback or able to walk into your office in person and say, hey, I would really find it meaningful if we could add this additional thing, you know, or have this additional accommodation. So I'm not having to participate in X, Y, and Z if it doesn't resonate with my beliefs on and on and on because your people want to be able to have this open communication because you've hopefully I identified that you have the psychological safety that you've established in your organization. And this isn't even addressing, of course, atheists and agnostics and folks who are not religious, who also absolutely should have space made for them and allowed to opt out of things that doesn't resonate with their beliefs. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about safety. And I think it's important psychological safety and also physical safety. And when it comes to people who are visibly religious and um, who are people who might be construed as, uh, you know, might, uh, people might have biases before or against somebody, whether or not they actually are from that religion. And some, a couple of things have come up recently from the anti Semitic remarks from Kanye West to on September 16th. 2022, Masha Amini, who is a 22-year-old Iranian woman, was killed under custody after being arrested for not wearing a hijab in accordance with the government standards. And um, this has impacted a lot of people in Iran and around the world. Um, Can you share how we can address this, how managers can address this in the workplace, where people may not be feeling physical safety as well as psychological safety outside of the work. And obviously we bring ourselves to work and we bring our experiences to work. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of different points to this and ultimately looking at it from a bird's eye view, there are going to, unfortunately, I wish this wasn't the case, but there are always going to be the newest horrible thing that is happening. That's affecting a certain identity group. And if your organization, either one has a policy of just never addressing any of these ever, that's going to very much damage any psychological safety that you may have at all, because your people who are being impacted by this, and it doesn't have to be people who are directly tied to that identity group. If you learn anything about trauma-informed care or trauma in general is that it doesn't have to be that you witnessed it directly. It doesn't have to be something that you were alive when it happened. It doesn't have to be something that is explicitly part of your identities. Trauma is like a tricky thing. So keeping in mind like those things that if your organization doesn't ever address any of these kinds of events, your people are like actively in pain, incredibly distracted. It's going to affect their productivity. It's going to impact their concentration. And 
like how much they feel that your organization truly lives up to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging values, right? Because ultimately, again, it's like, no, you're just a worker bee and we just need you to work, 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 work. And you can go have feelings and be human afterwards. (laughs) Having said that, going a step beyond, if you do address some of these kinds of events, but not all of them, or if you don't have like a standard by which you judge which ones are being commented on and held space for and which ones aren't, that is an invitation very clearly for bias to just stomp through the door (laughs) because then it's a matter of like who in the leadership position or the comms team or whoever is making the decision about what to say or when to say things, it's going to be based off of what they think is important, Mm -hmm. right? Which ultimately any one of us, all of us, no matter what our identities, no matter how privileged or marginalized our mixture of identities are, we are biased, right? Bias is a natural part of the human brain. It's just a shortcut for us to go from A to B very quickly instead of having to be super critical thought thinking over every single detail, every single situation. So keeping that in mind that bias is ultimately natural, but when it becomes problematic is in instances like this where there are many different things going on in the world, say over a period of months, and someone or a team of people decide, okay, well, these are the ones that we think are really important and extra traumatizing, or we need to say something for the visuals of saying that we said something about it, but these other events aren't, then that also is going to be problematic because it's still going to affect the psychological safety and the productivity and the morale and all of those things of the groups that one, their experiences of trauma and the difficulty that they are going through and the heaviness that they're carrying in their hearts every single day, whether they're at work and then when they go home, that is going to be something that they have a break in trust with the organization. But then also other groups are going to see like, oh, well, if they treat this group this way, it's not necessarily that they're going to stand up for us when it's our turn either. So having said that kind of like as a framework, so I do really encourage organizations to have some sort of formalized policy around what do you comment on and then what kind of resources do you have available to offer to your staff or not. I am a really big believer in just being honest, shocking with your people about what you can and cannot do for them. People don't like to be lied to. Like, you listening to this, you probably don't like being lied to. I don't like being lied to or led to believe things that aren't true or aren't, you know, things that you would offer. We'll be there for you. We'll support you. And then you ask for support and then it's not there. So I'm a really believer of just like, be honest with your people, what you can and cannot do for them. And again, having a policy of this is the world events or domestic events that we comment on. And these are the ones that we don't. And it's very clear about like, what are the decisions of how that's being made. So having said that, speaking specifically to the anti-Semitic comments by Connie West, and then the issues with Masa Amini's murder in Iran, these two events are part of the reason why talking about religion in the workplace needs to happen. Because if your organization again, just finds it completely unprofessional or finds it completely inappropriate, not done to talk about religion, then the people being affected by these events because of their religious identity then have nowhere to go. Again, you're just telling them, oh, 
like you need to just keep that to yourself because this isn't professional and they're just like carrying around all this trauma in their workplace and not able to concentrate and not able to communicate to their manager that they might need understanding or accommodations or something like that jewish folks absolutely do need to be supported in their experiences of anti-semitism in the world and at work all of these people that we see online supporting this hateful rhetoric against jewish folks we see them on Twitter. We see them on all different kinds of social media. You don't think they're in your workplaces. You don't think they have jobs. You don't think that like they're out in the world. They're not just like random internet faceless accounts that are having these messages. They are in your workplace, right? So you need to be able to have systems and processes in place to be able to support, defend, and deal with any discrimination, microaggressions that in this case, like your Jewish employees are facing so that they feel safe and valued and a sense of belonging and inclusion. If you're talking about the instances in Iran, I would say personally, I perceive that as more of a Iranian Persian ethnic kind of conflict and not necessarily as much a Muslim one. So I would keep in mind if your organization has folks who are Persian or from ethnic minorities within Persian culture, Iranian culture, that those folks, even if they don't necessarily identify as being Muslim, that they are really, really, really hurting right now. And being able to have a space for them to ask for accommodations, ask for understanding if they are distracted, if they are hurting, if they need to take a mental health day off. Do you have, do you offer mental health days as a part of your sick leave? For instance, I've seen so many articles come out that talk about burnout, right? That in the last years, burnout is so bad. And recently just seen another one that's like, oh, we think it's better. Nope. It's still worse. It's actually worse mm. and just getting worse and worse and worse. So again, something that is going to apply and really benefit this one specific group that we're talking about in this specific example. If you put policies in place, it can actually help all of your employees, right? Absolutely. Thank you. Is there anything else uh, that we didn't cover that uh, was on your mind they want to make sure that we cover? I would love to leave listeners with the idea that just like, hopefully there's an understanding of why colorblindness is so incredibly problematic when engaging on issues of race, right? For brown and black folks, their skin color, their race, as it is associated with their ethnicity, their heritage is so important to them. They love who they are. And it is only the isms of the world that make it problematic. And if we can understand that, if we've had those conversations, extending that understanding to religious identity. Most people in the world, if they identify with some sort of religion, it's because they want to be part of that religion. Am I going to sit here and pretend that there aren't people who are pressured by their families to be like to continue on their heritage religiously or are forced to do anything as a part of their family's religious heritage? Of course, there are people like that, for sure. However, again, most people, if they identify with some sort of religion, it is because, especially as adults, it is because they want to be a part of that religion. So as an organization, you're communicating directly or indirectly to these folks that 
their identity, their existence, especially if they are part of a marginalized religious identity in the context that you're in, the cultural context that you're in, right? That they are not professional, that they are not wanted, that you're bothering us by existing as you are. People are paying attention to that. They are keeping note of that. And if you have hired them because you really believe that, especially if you've done DEI and you believe that having a diversity of folks drives innovation, which I presume that I am speaking to folks who mm-hmm. have seen those stats and believe that and are on board with that, right? Like if you're not on board with that, then that's a different conversation. And that's cool. We mm-hmm. can have that conversation. But assuming that you want a diversity of folks in your organization to drive innovation and you want your staff to reflect your customer and client base as well, then yes, it is uncomfortable to talk about religion because all of us have learned as children growing up that it like, don't talk about religion and politics. Don't talk about religion and politics, religion and politics, religion and politics. So I'm not trying to say that it's not difficult, but it is possible. If we can talk about racism, if we can talk about sexism, if we can talk about homophobia, if we can talk about ableism, if we can talk about ageism, if we can talk about all of these isms, which we absolutely should, and many organizations Mm -hmm. are, then I would put to you that, yes, while difficult and uncomfortable, we can also talk about religious discrimination and religious inclusion. Awesome. And what is one action, and it might be that, but what is one action that you would like somebody to take coming away from this conversation today? I want you to, when you have established psychological safety in your organization, your people know what the problems are at your organization. They know how to improve your organization. Diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants exist because your people don't feel psychological safety to talk to you. And you have to bring in someone else to play mediator. And that's great. Like, I have a job, other DEI practitioners have a job. However, anyone who really believes the values of this work would infinitely rather to work ourselves out of a job, for sure. If you have done the work to establish and maintain, you have to maintain it. It's a lot of work to maintain. You have to maintain it once you've established it. Just like any relationship you have with a friend, with a partner, with your child, what have you, your people will come to you and give you feedback on how to improve your products, your services, your company culture, and simply listen to them. They know what it is to be on the ground, interacting with your customer's client and with their colleagues. They know what's happening and they are your biggest asset. Fantastic. Where can people learn more about your work? Yes. If you would like assistance with your Muslim inclusion or religious diversity, inclusion and equitable practices in your organization, I am more than happy to assist. You can find me on my website, rahimeramazani.com. Unfortunately, yes, you will have to (laughs) spell my name correctly, but you should be able to find it again in the show notes and in the title of this conversation. You can also find me. I am very active on LinkedIn under the same name again, Rahime Ramazani, and send me a DM and let's talk. Awesome. Thank you, Rahime. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Melinda. It's been such a pleasure being here and I wish you all the best. All right, everyone. Take action and we will see you next week. 
We'll share resources and a transcript from this discussion at ally.cc. And please make sure to subscribe to our channel and rate this show. It makes a difference for us. Thank you for being part of our community. And remember, the more we take action, the more we grow as humans and as leaders, and the more we transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Let us know your actions by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or reaching out on social media. And Leading with Empathy and Allyship is a show by Change Catalyst where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. You can learn more about us at changecatalyst.co. So let's keep building allyship across our communities and around the world. Thank you for listening.